0: Right now we're actually journeying through, if you've been around you know this, we're journeying through the book, the ancient wisdom book in the Old Testament called the Song of Songs. And so with that in mind, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do this morning, if you'd open up with me to the book of Song of Songs, you can find it in the Old Testament. Open up to the Song of Songs with me once again. And uh, if you don't know, if maybe you're kind of new or jumping on with us, this has been kind of a co-teach with a guy named Mike. So if you have not been with us, these teachings are online if you want to engage some of these teachings. Last week was fantastic again as we just uh, look to what it means, uh, what sexuality, what marriage, what... Um, relationships look like and how this wisdom book can kind of shape our lives as a community. So I encourage you to do that. With all that said though, you may have noticed if you've read the Song of Songs, and I think some of you have kind of read through it now that we're engaging it on a weekly basis, you may notice that there's three particular characters in the poems. There's he, there's she, and then there's the daughters of Zion, this group that maybe you've heard uh, in some of your texts, it says the daughters of Jerusalem. And you may have noticed when you're reading through the Song of Songs, that the woman at points in the poems actually exhorts the daughters of Jerusalem. And it's this unique kind of way in which in the poem and in the song, the woman turns towards the daughter of Jerusalem And there's this repetition back and forth. And actually one of the things that this does is it actually helps give the book a sense of cohesion. Now if we're all honest, let's be honest, let's put it on the table as we always do. We have to remember that this is poetry, right? It's written a couple, well, thousands of years ago in a completely different culture and language. So the poeticness, if that's a word, of this book really feels itself out in this rhythm of the woman at times turning towards the daughters of Jerusalem and talking to them, there's actually a rhythm to it. If you were a, a Hebrew reader, you would feel you would feel the rhythm. And in and amongst all this, there's actually a refrain that occurs three times throughout the Song of Songs to separate some of the poems that are in it. Now, just a side note, and this is a little technical, but. Um, I am convinced, along with the majority of scholarship, that the way you could articulate the Song of Songs is that it's one song, but the Song of Songs is actually a collection of poems. And there's differences on this in scholarship, but I think this is actually the best way to look at it, that there's actually subsets of poems within the overall book. And so to separate some of these poems in the book, what happens is there's this refrain, And it's actually a a repeated frame that actually happens three times. So with all that said, stay with me. This may seem, I promise you there's payoff, this may seem a little technical for a few minutes, but I promise that we're actually going somewhere, there is gonna be payoff, there is an end goal here. I would not waste your Valentine's Day, I would never ever do that. But I actually think what happens um, in these refrains, these repeated refrains, is not only a a picture for us of how the Song of Songs kind of comes together, but I think it actually says and speaks to to us a few thousand years later in what this actually means. There's something that I think is said in this refrain that is really important for us today, okay? Makes sense? Hopefully you're nodding your head virtually wherever you are. But let's look at these three refrains really quick and it's uh, just a a repeated phrase. So if you open up and you go to Song of Songs chapter two, Chapter two opens up with another poem and this is actually the first occurrence where a refrain comes at the end of the poem. So you have Song of Songs, you open it up, chapter two, you read through the first six verses. And in these verses, we actually find a passionate interchange between the man and the woman as they complement each other's beauty and attest to their desire for each other. And if you've been with us, we've read parts of chapter one and parts of chapter two, and it is hot and it is spicy. And these, this couple is leaving nothing kind of unseen. They are putting it all out there with their verbiage and with their words in their desire for each other. And... We've just been saying that God actually wired us with desire. We'll talk more again today about that, but that's kind of the picture you get that this couple is pouring out their words to each other, so much so that their lovemaking we get a picture is pleasant yet exhausting. There'll be no no commentary on that, right? So the woman actually in chapter two requests sustenance to energize her for more lovemaking. This is yet yeah, we're re, this is what we're reading. But it's interesting, as you get this desire at the beginning of chapter 2 in this poem, her final words are actually turned towards the daughters of Jerusalem. In verse 7, it says, she says this, she turns to them, kind of in this poem, and she says, I adjure you, daughters of Jerusalem, this is in verse 7, chapter 2, by the gazelles of the deer of the field, not to, and she says this, not to awaken or arouse love until it desires. She says to them, listen, do not awaken or arouse love until it desires. Then, if you're with me, you flip a chapter over. Just flip over with me. Song of Songs, chapter three. Chapter three also opens with another separate poem. And here in this poem, the woman speaks these words again to the daughters of Jerusalem at the end of the song. Now, in this poem... Uh, This particular poem in chapter three, we learn that sexual intimacy does not come easily. Come on, can somebody say amen, right? But when it does come, we actually get a picture within the poem that it comes with overwhelming force. Listen to the woman's words here. She says this, if you look at Song of Songs three, chapter, chapter three, verse four, she says this, I grabbed him and would not let him go. Until I brought him to my mother's house. all right? And then she says to be uh, she, I brought, brought him to my mother's house, to the room where she conceived me. Now this is uh, interesting. There's layers here, but you notice that in the aftermath of her passion, once again, just like in chapter two, the woman turns to the daughters of Jerusalem and she says this, the exact same thing. She says this refrain, "I adorn you, daughters of Jerusalem." by the gazelles of the, or the deer of the field, not to awaken or arouse love until it desires. Same refrain as what we saw in chapter two. This poem again ends with exactly the same thing. Don't awaken or arouse love until it desires. We see it one more time. Keep flipping. Go to Song of Songs, chapter eight with me. Once again, chapter eight opens with another poem and this is actually the third occurrence where this refrain appears and the woman speaks again and this is what she says now bear with me hang on with me because this is this is very interesting at a cursory read she says this you're like i thought the bible like you hear people say all the time the bible's boring are you kidding me have you read this stuff anyways listen to this she says oh that you were like my brother who sucked at the breasts of my mother. I just got to pause and say, you know, there's going to be tons of churches this morning because of Valentine's doing like a talk or a teaching on love. And we can just say, we've been at this for like weeks, right? So we're way ahead of the game. Anyways, oh, that you were like my brother who sucked at the breast of my mother. Then I would find you in public and kiss you. What? And they would not shame you. I would lead you. I would bring you to the house of my mother who taught me. I would make you drink spiced wine from my own pomegranate wine. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. Now, some of you are like, you want to hit pause? You're like, what the heck is this? Is this incest? This woman is talking about her brother in very sexual terms and you're like I knew the I knew I knew it. I knew there was something crazy going on. This may seem strange, right? But we we always have to take into consideration that we're distanced from the cultural context in which this poem and these poems were written. Col- you know this. Cultures have very different standards for the public display of emotions in society. Even if you were to go to different cultures now, there are very different terms in which people live by as far as PDA. In Israelite culture, in which this poem was written thousands of years ago, any public display of affection was acceptable when it was between siblings, but was not acceptable when it was between a husband and wife. It was acceptable to have public displays of affection between siblings, but it was almost taboo in that culture outside of the home to have PDA between husband and wife. And so the woman here is speaking in terms, obviously, of her brother. But what she's doing is she is wishing that she could enjoy in public the physical pleasures with the man she longs for that would lead to the more intimate pleasures Of the bedroom. And she, I mean, it's pretty explicit here. She imagines and fantasizes about those pleasures. And again, for the third time, so she's not talking about her brother, she's longing for this lover. But for the third time, again, there's a refrain. She turns her attention towards the daughters of Zion or the daughters of Jerusalem and says, Once again, I adorn you, daughters of Jerusalem. And for the third time, says, Do not awaken. And do not arouse love until it desires. Do not awaken and do not arouse love until it desires. So the question here, hopefully you're out there, the question here is what is going on here? Well I think we need to put the Song of Songs into the category that it is. I always say that actually the Scriptures, the library of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, should be seen as a library of wisdom. I believe, fundamentally, that the Bible is a wisdom document filled with a library of different genres and different things coming together to give the reader general wisdom about how they live their lives under the rule and reign of God. Now we know that there's wisdom literature in the Old Testament, specific wisdom literature, and we have to keep Song of Songs in its context as a wisdom book. And ultimately, the goal of the song and the poems that we're reading throughout these weeks is to impart wisdom to us. That's what we want to gain. We want to gain wisdom from this particular literature. And here's the thing, the repetition actually means something. The refrain, the idea that this woman is coming back to the same phrase to these, to the daughters of Jerusalem is really important because the woman here is actually imparting an important message to the daughters of Jerusalem. And I also think it's an important message to us picking it up thousands of years later. And the message is this timing is everything. Timing is everything. This is what the woman is trying to communicate to these daughters of Jerusalem. Poetically, yes, but she is ultimately trying to relay the message and would relay the message to us, picking up this really unique book years and years later to understand. That wisdom leads us to this idea that timing is everything. Ultimately, there's a season for everything. There's another wisdom book in Ecclesiastes that talks about that there's a season. There's seasons for everything. That timing is every everything. And in her words here, you actually see in this woman's words that there's urgency in this refrain. She says, I adjure you, daughters of Jerusalem. Basically, that's her way of saying It's crucial that they hear and respond to her, that her words are weighty, that she's serious. Not only this, and we don't do this in our time very much, we don't make a lot of oaths in our day, but there's explicit language here that she backs up her plea with a call or an oath, uh, with a call that they would take an oath together. And the oath is to not arouse or to awaken love until it so desires. That is... She does not want these daughters, these disciples in love, as they're known in the poem, to impulsively rush into a a relationship like the one she is having with this man. In a sense, uh, actually what I think this woman is doing is she is pleading with these daughters of Jerusalem for patience. There is a plea for patience from the woman to the daughters of Jerusalem when it comes to sex and to marriage, and to intimacy. There's a plea that they would be patient as they live this out. Because brothers and sisters, timing is everything. There's a season, the scriptures lead us in wisdom. There is a season for everything. Now can we be honest, let's just be honest, put it out here. We are flat out rushed, are we not? Like as a culture, and even in the church, we are just rushed. So in the culture, there's a rush to sex. There just is. I mean, just look at our television show, TV shows, the movies we engage, the podcasts, the, the, the media that we engage. There is a rush to sex, right? One night stands. You got to have sex on the first date. Like this is a cultural norm. This is a narrative within our own culture. You've probably heard this little line, you got to test the car before you buy it. Which, by the way, in a culture where right now we are very uh, sensitive in a good way to derogatory things, what a... D- Are you with me? What a derogatory statement to say you got to test. I hear this. You got to test the car before you drive it. The fact is our culture is possessed with a rush to sex. It's immediate. It's fast. You get there right away. In the church, there's a rush to marriage. Can I get an amen? Is anybody going to be set free this morning? There just is. In the church, there's been a culture where there is a rush to marriage. There's been pressure. Some of you felt it growing up in the church to get married in your early 20s. There's all all these surrounding pressures. In the culture, there's a pressure and a quickness towards a rush towards sex. In the church, there's a rush towards marriage. One of the things we have to ask is, is is there a better way? I got to be honest with you, as a kid who grew up in the late 80s and early 90s, I'm just worn out by purity culture. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you don't because you're new to the way of Jesus and you don't know the surrounding culture in the evangelical church in the 80s and 90s. But I think many of us are actually worn out on the purity, the the idea, the ideas that were implemented in in the time of purity culture. You know, from True Love Waits, the True Love Waits uh, movement, to a famous book back in the 90s called I've Kissed Dating Goodbye. Basically, purity culture kind of put on people, young people within the church, a bunch of rules, a bunch of do's and don'ts. Don't do it because it's bad. And just wait till you, like, especially when it came to sex, just wait till you get married. And the promise was, is that your sex life in marriage would be euphoric. You would do it all the time and it would be bliss. But we know that the, I mean, 20 years, 25 years later, we know that those type of rules and this type of movement has left a lot of people confused and empty. It's a lot, left a lot of people searching. When it was just don't do it, or this is how you do it, or when you're to do it, it's left a lot of people confused and at the end of the day, empty. You know, as I as I compare Purity culture in the 90s to what we're actually engaging here, I just have to say, Song of Songs is a way better way of approaching sex, intimacy, and relationships than purity culture. Song of Songs is way better than purity culture. Think about it with me. Just think about the last bunch of weeks as we've engaged this. The wisdom of Song of Songs says that sex is beautiful, it's powerful, and it's God's idea. It also says, that desire is good and God-given to us. And the wisdom of the song also says that there is, and please hear me, there is a season for intimacy, and that the relationship that that can hold the power of sexual intimacy and sexual relationships is this thing called marriage. It's not about the do's and don'ts. I actually think the story that the Song of Songs gives us is a way better narrative in story. Listen, you and I, we can do what, honestly, I think we have free reign over what we do. We can do whatever we want with our bodies. It has to be more than don't do this or do this. I think the beauty of the Song of Songs is it gives us this wisdom that God loves sex and there is a season for sex and intimacy. One of the things I've just been saying is that wisdom is way greater than rules. Wisdom here is do not awaken and don't arouse love until it desires. And so one of the things we get here in the woman's refrain to these daughters of Jerusalem is that part of walking in the way of God, and now obviously on this side of the cross, walking in the way of Jesus is patience. Patience. Patience is actually the way of Jesus. And if, if you think about it, really, when you think about the the what it means to follow Jesus with our lives, from the earliest of Christians, they learned this, that following Jesus is about delayed gratification. You know, one of the things we wait for right now is we are eagerly anticipating and waiting as Jesus followers for a kingdom to come. And so just as we're to be patient in the longing and waiting for the way this is going to shape up and Jesus bringing heaven to earth, there's also signposts in the life of a Christian, in the life of a follower of Jesus, where we are patiently waiting. We are not, as we've been talking about, we are not animals. We are not just the sum of our urges. We are image bearers that live this out. And part of what it means to follow Jesus is to wait patiently. Now, with that in mind... One of the things we do not talk about in the church a lot is singleness. We don't talk about this enough. You know, it may seem odd to talk about singleness when we're talking about the Song of Songs. And, you know, ultimately this is a whole book about two people that are like hot and heavy for each other. The language, the explicit imagery. Why would we talk about singleness? But, you know, I think the scripture, and most importantly, Jesus himself, had some mind-blowing things to say about singleness. He really did. And I just want to take, I want to take about five or six minutes here as we kind of land the plane to just talk about the elevation that the Bible, the scriptures, and Jesus put on being single and walking as someone who's single in the kingdom of God. There's ultimately a kingdom posture when we read the scriptures, and we're going to get to one really important passage that Jesus talks about where singleness is actually elevated, that there's a kingdom posture towards this. The great Stanley Hauerwas, he's, he said this. He said, those who follow Jesus no longer have to marry to avoid being alone. And I know this is maybe easy for married people to talk about, but, um, and I know the complexities and the layers to this, but I often think this is what's so unique about following in the way of Jesus, that there's actually something greater than our evangelical obsession about marriage. And I think at times there has been an obsession to, as I've said, run quickly towards marriage. Even with the marriage course that we're running at Praxis here, I, we've taken our time because we know that over the years there's tended to be an overemphasis on marriage. And Howard Was is saying here that one of the things that we embody as Jesus followers is we participate with life in the Trinity. We follow a triune God who's given us Father, Son, and Spirit that we walk with. And there's this idea that When we talk about loneliness, the unique thing about following the way of Jesus is we have God. Michael J. Wilkins says this. He says, unfortunately, many churches endorse marriage as a sign of maturity. Have you heard this before? Single people are seen as those who have not settled down yet. And by the way, if we ever hear that, we just, I'm nonviolent, but we may just come after you. I'm just joking. We'd never come after you. But Such incorrect thinking. He goes on to say we need to review the way in which we view and value single people within our ministries. And I can't agree more. We need to rethink this. So, this is crazy. Jesus actually brings a new paradigm in the new covenant. And one of the things he does in the new covenant is he elevates singleness to the same level as marriage. One pastor and thinker, he put it like this. He said, marriage and singleness are two different versions of awesome and two different versions of very hard. And anybody that's married knows this, right? Sometimes we think as we talk about singleness within the church that it's just maybe that community of people where it's hard. This this guy says marriage and singleness are two different versions of awesome. They're both amazing and yet two different versions of very hard. But one of the things that has seeped into the church at times over the last few hundred years is again an obsession of marriage which at times can be drawn from the Jewish tradition. So when you pick up your Bible and we read the scriptures together, we're reading literature and things that were very prevalent obviously to the Jewish community and with that there was an over obsession in the Jewish community with marriage. There was an obsession with this You know, the Mishnah, which is also known as the oral tradition of Jesus' day, said this. This is actually what their their scripture was. The oral scripture to them. This was one of the things it said. No man may abstain from keeping the law. Be fruitful and multiply unless he already has children. So right there in their verbiage from the Mishnah, they would say, listen, you are born born. For marriage and to bear children. Actually, the word celibacy in the New Encyclopedia of Judaism says this, that marriage is a commitment in Jewish tradition and celibacy is deplored. This is, this is the definition in the Jewish commentary. Now, even deeper is this, our boy named Josephus. If you know, Josephus was a scholar, a writer in the first century. He was a Jew. This is what he says. He says, he said this, shun eunuchs and flee all dealings with those who have deprived themselves of their fertility and of those fruits of generation, which God has given me for their increase of our race. Expel them as infanticides who withal have destroyed the means of procreation for plainly, it is by reason of the effemacy of their, of their soul that they have changed their sex of their body also." And so even deep down in the writings of the Jewish people, again, there's this thing. You do not avoid the role you have to get married and have kids. This was an obsession within the Jewish community. But then you get to Jesus. Then you get to Jesus. If you have a Bible, I actually encourage you, as we close, to turn to Matthew chapter 19. Because Jesus actually deals with this. He knows he's in a culture obsessed with childbearing and being fruitful and multiplying. And so in Matthew 19, Jesus' disciples actually come to him with a bunch of questions. They come to him about divorce. And um, there's a whole backdrop to divorce in the Old Testament. Moses would easily give uh, the people divorce certificates. And so they thought they were kind of asking Jesus about his response to divorce. And Jesus has this radical response. We don't have time to unpack this as much, but he says to them, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And so, I mean, this is weighty for the disciples to hear. And so the disciples respond to Jesus by saying this. If such is the case, Jesus, if this is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Right, Jesus? Like if this is the case, what you just said in response to divorce, it's probably better not to marry. And honestly, as the disciples ask Jesus this question, they're probably thinking that Jesus' response is, no, 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 no. We're good Jewish people, of course. Everybody should get married. Everybody should bear children. This is what we do. But instead, he says this to them. Listen, lean right into this. This is, I know this may not be earth shattering for us. I know we're in a different society, culture, place, and space. But this is mind-blowing when you have that context. Jesus says this. Not everyone can receive this saying. So he didn't affirm what the, what the disciples were saying. They were saying, well, pfft. You know, maybe we shouldn't get married. And and Jesus is actually, sorry, he is affirming by saying, listen, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. Okay. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by man. Jesus knew the context of the ancient world. Oftentimes, if you served in the palace of a king, they would castrate you because you were a threat to Entering into an adulterous affair with the king's wife or the king's mistresses or whatever. And so they would castrate those uh, In who worked in the king's house. I crazy. I know but Jesus Jesus knew this some of you are eunuchs from birth Some have been made eunuchs by men. This was legitimately a thing and then Jesus says this listen And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven They're eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Right here, Jesus is elevating singleness. And ultimately, we know that Jesus modeled that you do not have to have a sexual relationship to be fulfilled or to be fully human. Now, that may sound crazy as we've been walking like theme and even verse by verse at times through this erotic love book in the Old Testament. But we just need to be reminded that there is a time and a season for everything. And Jesus knew and understood that singleness would be a calling for many people. So to stay single in the ancient Jewish culture was looked down on, but actually was something that was encouraged within the early church. Jesus own words here and how he elevates it and then you get to Paul. In 1 Corinthians, we know the church is jacked up in in Corinth. They are trying there's so many connections between the Song of Songs and the church in Corinth because The church in Corinth, there's abuses, there's all sorts of gnarly things going on. And Paul is trying to teach them how to live out the way of Jesus in a very pluralistic, over-sexualized culture. Not that anything has obviously changed in the last couple thousand years. And so he's trying to to help and lead the church and how bodies within the church are to act and to live this out, to live the kingdom out. In 1 Corinthians 7, he actually talks about singleness. He says this, Verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Paul, we think maybe was married. He at one point was married as he was serving in the Sanhedrin, which I think was a requirement to be married. But we know during his conversion and we know during his time amongst these churches after his conversion that he's single. And he says to the people within the church, anybody unmarried or the widows within the church, it's probably good that you remain unmarried. Listen to what he says. But if the person cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to to marry than to burn with passion. So what basically Paul is doing is calling any of us that have gotten married, he's telling us we basically lack lack self-control. And you're like, all right, it is what it is. Then he goes on, if you skip down to verse 32, this is hilarious, Heather, this is so funny. He says, so practical, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. No further commentary. We'll just go with what Paul says here. I think it's pretty good. Verse 34. I love you. Love you, Heather. All right. So. Uh, but so for 33, the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife and his interests are divided. This is what Paul says. When you're married, your interests are divided and this is so tr- true. Then he goes on and the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. Then he goes on, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So Paul says to both husbands and wives and single people within this community, your time, your attention is often divided in marriage. Paul is encouraging, you should be like me because I'm single and I have this type of devotion towards the kingdom of God. All this to say, Paul, Jesus, the writers of the New Testament had a completely different idea of the cultural norms, especially the Jewish cultural norms, when it comes to marriage. Is marriage a beautiful thing? Absolutely. But they elevate singleness within the church, and I think as a community, we should too. Because as ancient wisdom would tell us in this love poetry, there is a season for everything. And at times, it means being patient. I often think about the culture's idea of sex, right? They look on the church and go, man, the church is just so, you know, they, they look at stuff like purity culture and go, the church is so shallow and Victorian. Look at this pastor dude talking about sex in the context of marriage. Listen, you can do whatever you want with your body. And yet, it seems like instead of this crush, these crushing rules, what Song of Songs does for us, it says, this is the way to live wisely, We all have sexual past. We all have brokenness. This is not about judgment. This is just about showing us that the scriptures lead us in a way of patience. Do not awaken and do not arouse love until it desires. Be patient. Our sexuality is not the only thing that makes us human. And one of the things we can do as a community is to continue to elevate this idea of singleness as a way in which we all live in different types of relationships within the community, but all following Jesus and his way. And I just want to let us know as we talk about this, I understand the complexities of a married guy with four kids talking about singleness. I get it. I know there's very, very real things in and amongst this conversation. And I want to let us know there are no empty promises here. There's no empty purity culture promises that... You know, everything is going to be amazing when you get married. Because we just know. This is why we're doing the marriage course. It's hard. It's difficult. And I just want to encourage uh, our community just to be this community that's postured towards each other, open towards each other, no matter what season of life. And there's some that are going over these years, moving forward as a community that are single and want to be married. And we want to cultivate a place that in some ways, cultivates those desires and and walks with people in that. But then there's also, I think, this calling of singleness where there will be some that will walk in. And it, it is a hard calling, I know. But it is, uh, I think, as the scriptures lead is something beautiful indeed. You know, one of the things that you get after— we're going to close here, promise. One of the things you get after the refrain in— this refrain, um, do not awaken and do not arouse love until it desires, in chapter three. Right after that refrain, a new poem starts. And what it is, it is a poem that describes this incredible wedding this incredible coming together there's chariots and horses and solomon's men and all sorts of imagery in their imagery in their time and in their day that just shows this lavish moment when this male and female come together in marriage and i think it's a picture for us that in the patient waiting the scriptures also this wisdom also gives us that picture of when these two lives come together because there's a season for everything. And that's what wisdom leads us to. And uh, I hope we can live in whatever season we're in. Um, we can live that out well. That's my hope and my desire. That's why we teach about sex. That's why we talk about this very openly. But I also felt as we come to this in this continual rhythm in Song of Songs, just to make sure that the season is right. This is what God's wisdom says. Now, I know I know we have not really been reading Song of Songs as an allegory. We've taken the posture and the position to read it more as erotic love poetry, which we think it is. But I I also think when we think about this idea in chapter three of this man and wife after the refrain coming together in, in this wedding, that we be reminded that we are people that patiently await a wedding. Ultimately as God followers, as Jesus followers, Listen, not everything here is an allegory, but I think we can actually look at it like this as we close. You, and, If you follow Jesus, you and I, all of us, whether you're married or single, are all patiently awaiting a wedding. We are longing and waiting and desiring for heaven to come to earth. One of the pictures we get of Jesus' return and bringing heaven to earth is this great reuniting of heaven and earth together, that the bride will come Uh, That the groom will come for its bride and as we see in this beautiful picture, every tear will be wiped away, every injustice will be undone, and God and his people through King Jesus will live together forever. And as we come to that picture in Song of Songs 3, it's just a continual reminder for us, no matter what stage we're at, we are all awaiting this renewal, this bringing back together. Doesn't matter where we're at in our own story, there's a collective longing within us. And so my brothers and sisters, I hope that, you know, no no matter what season we're at, whether we're married and maybe we feel at times like we don't want to be, maybe we're single and we desire to be married, no, no matter where we're at, maybe we're wrestling through this call of singleness and what this means and how you could devote your life to the ways of the kingdom. I don't know where we're at on that. But I hope today we could continue to long that these pictures and images in this song would also push forward to the reality that God is coming through Jesus to renew all things. So let's, brothers and sisters, create a culture within our own community that walks alongside each other, opens our lives towards each other in this great calling, what God has called us to. I'm gonna pray for us. We love you guys. We are excited about the beginning of Lent and what, uh, what we believe this season is going to be. But let me pray for us before my friend Cam breaks us down for just two minutes to say hi. Father, I thank you. Thank you for your love for us. I pray that we would receive this wisdom. God, you want to give us wisdom, and that's found in scriptures and what you're leading us in. I just pray, King Jesus, that you would have your way among us. You would open up our lives, God, to what you're leading us in. Shape us. Make us. I pray for each person in our community that you would just help us to be attentive to your will and to your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.